Hello, it's 8th of January 2017, and this is episode 12 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. Right, before we go into the actual content of the episode, I would just like to say a very big thank you to Miranda, who's our friend, who basically did the wonderful music you just heard at the beginning of the podcast. She composed especially for us and has worked really, really hard on it. So we're very grateful to her for putting all that effort in and we think it sounds amazing. So thank you so much. <laughs> it's really yes. great. <laughs> thank you, Miranda. It's just so beautiful. We're really grateful for the effort and time that you put into that. It's just gorgeous to have that for the podcast. So thanks very much. Yeah, no, it's really awesome. Um, yeah, and then obviously going into the podcast proper, um, <laughs> more has happened between Christmas and now than we anticipated because we obviously took a break for that period because we wanted to spend time for our families and so on and so forth. Um, and we thought there wouldn't be much going on. And obviously just before Christmas, we had the news that Carrie Fisher had had a heart attack on a plane flying from London to L.A., and then obviously a few days later, we learned that she had passed away. And then the next day, it was like all the <laughs> tragedy was compounded because we obviously found out her mother had passed away as well. Um, so, yeah, that's really, really gut-wrenching stuff. And it's not something you like, ever prepare for because Carrie was only 60 years old. And in this day and age, that's young you, you you should not be dying at 60 and it's especially shocking because she was obviously taken like right when she was in the middle of this career resurgence when she was suddenly appearing in new star wars as well as loads of other new projects like catastrophe and appearing on every talk show going and writing new books and yeah so it, it was just a big big shock um yeah i was wondering if you wanted to say a few words, Kirsty, like about how it struck you and like what Carrie meant to you. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it was a big shock. None of us saw anything like this happening. Um, we were both just devastated, right? Like, yeah. even though we haven't been recording the podcast, we've been talking to each other quite a bit over the, the Christmas period and just been really, really upset because Carrie meant a great deal to both of us. Mm. Um as Leia, obviously, but also as a person in her own right. Yeah. Um, she was just brilliant, you know? Mm. She had an incredible sense of humour and just seemed like a lovely, warm, genuine person. Um, so candid and honest in her writing. Um, we've both just finished reading The Princess Diaries, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And loved that. Um, I've been a fan of her writing for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Wishful Drinking was, I think, the first book of hers that I read. And um, as someone who struggles with mental illness myself, her writing was really important to me mm. and is still really important to me. Um, yeah. I just really appreciated that she did a lot to destigmatize mental illness yeah. and um, to help people feel less ashamed of their struggles and to own it and acknowledge that those things are struggles, that life can be difficult, especially with those kind of mental health problems. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just really sad. I don't know what to say. Yeah, no, no, it is. It, it is so, so hard because, like, like you say, it's not like when someone's elderly, in which case you can almost, like, prepare yourself for it. Like, Carrie dying was probably the biggest shock to me in terms of, 
like so- someone's death in 2016 apart from David Bowie who right. was massively massively important to me um and I-, I was so upset and cut up about that that my boss asked if I wanted to go home from work <laughs> um I didn't in the end so I decided it would be better for me to just persevere and try and go on as like as normal as much as possible which was in the end the right decision but yeah like I just had that same kind of like feeling of overwhelming sadness of Carrie in in a way it was it was slightly less shocking because we obviously knew she was in hospital beforehand because she was hospitalized about three days before she eventually passed but you do still like in your heart of hearts you you will her to survive you know yeah. you think this person is so vibrant they're so feisty and like she has so much left to live for and so much left to offer the world and she can't be taken like this she she just can't so even though the logical part of your brain might be saying this looks pretty bad in your heart you can like just accept that you <laughs> want to deny that it's going to happen and yeah that's kind of the place i found myself in with yeah. it yeah I saw a lot of posts after she went into hospital that people were saying, oh, she'll be writing a funny book about this. This yeah. will be a future anecdote. Mm. Um, and you wanted to b- believe that, but it, it didn't look good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you don't want to think about something that horrible happening to someone. And yeah. I know, you know, people sometimes say you shouldn't get upset about celebrity deaths because you don't know the person, mm. but they can still be really important to you. Yeah. And I And I don't even want to say that Carrie was important just because of the character she played because while that is important to a lot of people obviously for the Star Wars community she was much more than that yeah 100% like because with with the Princess Diarist I I have to be completely like frank and open about this basically um you you were getting it anyway for Christmas um and we were actually separately from that contacted by the publisher penguin random house like well before christmas well before anything happened with carrie like offering us a copy like so we could read it and potentially just give our thoughts um and so i had just a, co- a copy of the book that way and i read it like i basically picked it up as soon as i heard the news because mm. I-, I felt like i wanted to like connect with her like connect with Carrie the person rather than carry the character of Princess Leia yeah if that makes sense um and I really felt the book offered me that um because like I, I sometimes feel like I'm not the most articulate articulate person when I'm speaking which I, I know is ironic because I'm also on a podcast <laughs> but I feel like I never express myself so well and so much as I want to as I do when I'm writing that's how I feel most comfortable and yeah like reading Carrie write like this in the princess diaries like and like really express herself and write about her feelings and emotions and her insecurities I found that really really like heightened my empathy for Carrie Mm -hmm. because like I haven't read any of her writing before I really really want to seek out her other books now because I know this is only a tiny slice of the story but yeah, like the value I found in that book, it was mostly because it allowed me to get in touch with Carrie as a person and particularly the mature, world-wise Carrie, reflecting upon teenage, adolescent Carrie. And there was just this massive poignancy in that. And I found it really interesting how the real book compared to the book 
like as it was described in the headlines and as it was referred to by like the talk show hosts that Carrie was going on and speaking to in the book tour to promote it. Like, because everyone made it seem like it was going to be quite salacious, you know, it's like, mm. oh, Carrie had an affair with Harrison Ford. Like, this is the story you've all been waiting for. Um, but when you actually read about the account of the affair with Harrison Ford, it's actually, it's just kind of like painful and really sad and poignant. You know, there's nothing like sexy about it. And she's just so like frank and like gut-wrenchingly honest about how this relationship made her feel and the length she went to to try and please everyone around her and yeah like it was just so like authentic and like incisive and I really admired her like capacity to just like convey her feelings both in the present of 1976 because the book obviously includes diary entries that she wrote when she was filming Star Wars and also like the present Carrie, like as an older woman, and like reflecting on all these like crazy facets of her life, like the celebrity lap dances <laughs> where she goes and signs autographs and stuff. Um, and yeah, I just really in- enjoyed it, like for that, for really like allowing me to connect to Carrie, like as she wished to express herself on the page, because there's no sense of her writing like a version of herself that she wants people to imagine her to be. She's just trying to write authentically about how she was and how she is now. And it's almost like, damn the consequences of that. I'm not out here to please you or to like give you all the cheerful, happy little anecdotes you might want from a book that's apparently about the filming of Star Wars. Like, no, it's just about, me as a person and my feelings and emotions at that time and yeah I really really respected that and was able to connect to that on a very deep level Uh, and I I think perhaps most importantly it really it reminded me of the fact that there's something beautiful like even when someone's passed how their art is really going to endure Mm -hmm. and I think having read this like I really appreciate that while Leia is obviously going to be the pop culture icon, that is going to be the image that is undeniably stamped, like, in 20th century pop culture. I think the most authentic version of Carrie is going to come through in her writing. So I yeah. really sense her expressing, like, herself fully in that medium. Um, yeah, like, what did you think about, like, her writing and, like, the books specifically and stuff? Oh, I loved reading the book. I couldn't yeah. really put it down once I started. Yeah. Um, I love Carrie's writing because she's so incredibly self-aware. Like the yeah. way she writes, like you say that there's no artifice. She's not interested in developing a persona for people. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, she's just really, you can tell that she's being honest about the way she feels about things and the way she yeah. perceives the world and herself. Um, she obviously has a very complicated relationship with Leia. Mm. Um, so she said before that she feels like her custodian I think she really understands that level of responsibility yeah Um, but when I was watching Bright Lights last night the HBO documentary um, Mm. which is wonderful I I would really recommend people watch that if they can I really want Um, to watch it I I think it's shown on the UK on Sky Atlantic on Tuesday okay great yeah Yeah, it's fantastic Um, Mm. I cried all the way through it but (laughs) didn't didn't expect anything else yeah Um, but the the Princess Diarist and that documentary are a great, they're great companion pieces to each other. Um, and yeah. you feel like you really get to see um, Carrie from 
consuming those two things. Um, The Princess Diaries just seems so incredibly relatable. I don't know if that's just because like we're um, women listening to another woman talk about her feelings or Mm. just like kind of flashing back to when I was 19 years old. Yeah. You really resonate with the the idea of being insecure and desperate to impress those around you yeah. and being a, being a people pleaser before you really develop your own sense of self and that confidence. Yeah. Um, and then as you say, like you, you're kind of switching back and forth between her diary entries from the time that she was filming Star Wars to how she feels about it now. Mm. So you can really see that growth of her as a person Yeah. Um, and how, you know, she, she says in the book, she, wants to tell the story before it's too late and someone else tells it for her. Yeah. Like it's really important for her that this comes out on her terms because it wasn't a salacious affair. Like you say, Mm. that's not what she remembers it as. That's not how it was ever supposed to be. It wasn't like they did something to be scandalous or I know uh, people must have all sorts of opinions about the fact that she had an affair with a married man, Harrison Mm. Ford and someone who was quite a bit older than her. Mm. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what other people think. It's about how it shaped their experiences. Yeah. Like, the main, like, feeling I think those diary entries gave me was they almost made me want to, like, reach back through time to 19-year-old Carrie and, like, look her in the face and say, you are so talented. You you do not need to feel insecure because you have so much talent. Like, the way she could just write about herself even then, you know, it was so impressive to me. It's like, I, I feel diaries upon diaries when I was 19, but I couldn't write like that. I couldn't mm-hmm. write with that kind of precision or that level of self-analysis. And yeah, I think that's an amazing skill to just possess, like in your arsenal. And yeah, like, and, and when, <laughs> like, this is kind of tangential, but basically I was looking at the Amazon reviews of the princess diarist so i was curious to see what other people thought about it as well and one of the reviewers i think he basically said overall it was quite good but he said that he found like the diary pages like silly and he suggested that like any father of teenage girls will know the kind of like silly nonsense that these pages are all about you know oh. like just completely dismissing like the expression of carrie when she was a teenager and okay, well, that is exactly why this book is important. Exactly. I, I, exactly. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sick of grown men trivialising teenage girls' experiences. Yeah. I see that constantly. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that's why this kind of thing is important. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, One of the most... It was actually really creepy, and I think there was a Verge article about this as well that touched upon it. There's, like, an incident described, like, I think it was a, a birthday party for George Lucas... And it's basically all the crew members like gathering around Carrie and trying to get her drunk and Mm -hmm. then trying to like lead her away to destination unknown for purposes unknown. And it was actually really scary, like reading about it. And like there was this strange like separation, like in this way in which she was describing it. So she didn't describe it as like a horrific or terrible experience. She described it in relatively like light, breezy terms but yeah, like that kind of thing, it makes you realise the trials she was put through, you know, and even though as a mature woman, she could look back on these things and like, I, I don't want to say make light of, the, light, light of them, so I'm not sure that's what she's doing, but like 
cope with them and rationalize them in certain ways so that they weren't like anything to linger on because you can't think too much about those kinds of things and like all the awful ramifications for them because then yeah again I think that's that's something that is related to a lot of girls and women yeah that um almost as a sense of self-preservation you have these quite frightening experiences when you're not you know at full capacity or you know you've had a couple of drinks and and people might try to take advantage yeah um and then later on you try to kind of rationalize it and trivialize it in a way that allows you to keep going like that you know you don't want to think about what might have happened um i it might be hard for some men to understand but that is a very common experience for women yeah um yeah, I didn't. I didn't think that her diary entries were silly at all. I thought she was incredibly articulate, mm. um, and honest and sincere. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that's what I really like the most because I always really massively rate sincerity. Like, I don't like people who like are indirect and waffle and can't get to the point, <laughs> you know. And Carrie's wonderful because she doesn't do that. Like, yeah. she is very like direct and. Like, while I'd say there's perhaps, like, the absence of, like, a main through line throughout the book, because there's essentially these three sections. So the first is, like, vaguely chronological up to the filming of Star Wars. Then there's the the diary entries. And then, like, it jumps ahead, like, to musings on, like, the convention scene and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, like, it it does feel like a bit there's an... A bit like there's maybe an absence of structure in that sense. But it was also quite refreshing. It was just, like this is Carrie writing about what she wants to write about in this particular work. And she doesn't give a damn about what other people are here for. She's just going to write, like, and get these things down on the page. And yeah, I think overall, I just found there's like a sense of urgency to it. And it's difficult with these kinds of things because you almost like, it's very difficult to read this book after she's died (laughs) because obviously you always have that knowledge in your head. And then that colours things in a certain way when they probably weren't intended in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like like I said earlier, there there are kind of moments where she says things like, I need to get this out before Mm. it's too late and stuff like that. Like that she needs to say it on her own terms before someone else comes along and tells the story for her. Yes. Which is, yeah, I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah. I, I guess it just makes it more poignant. Like knowing that, but in a way, it's also quite comforting to know that she really wanted to get these things out there. And she did. She achieved yeah. that. I am really glad that she was able to tell the story for herself. Yeah. And, I, you know, Harrison Ford, we know that he's a very private person. Um, so it, it did feel almost voyeuristic to, like, see parts of his experiences through her lens. Yeah. But she just has such an excellent way of describing who he, he also was at that time. Yes. Um, we are only seeing it from her lens, so I don't know how true it is but just the way she describes them sometimes it's really funny yes um but it struck me as very much how i would expect harrison to be in those situations like just based upon the obviously heavily restricted insight we have from his public persona but like he does seem to be like very withdrawing and not at all about sharing his emotions or being open about things there's this amazing line she says i can't remember the exact quote but it's something about him being boring but mm -hmm. make he's trying to make it look like a decision as opposed to an accident (laughs) yes (laughs) exactly and and again like i I love that i love that we're able to laugh at that 
And again, that's such a, a wonderful testament to Carrie that even while she's describing these things where like in some ways they are like quite sad or troubling, like that also she also manages to make them funny. Yeah. So even though there's all this tragedy and despair in her life, she does still remind you that it's not all tragedy and despair. There there are these ridiculous aspects to all these things. And you can always like find a way to laugh about them. And that is very like a healthy attitude to take, I think. Yeah. Um, she really manages to mix that sincerity with a wry look at things. Yeah. And, you know, be able to laugh at them because yeah. you have to really, don't you? Yeah. And like, I was also like one last thing. So we obviously have to move on soon. Um, but I was also really admired how frank she was like just about the bullshit that women have to endure in Hollywood. Yeah. Like obviously that she endured specifically herself I think there was one part where she described, she was describing how male dominated the crew of the original Star Wars was. Mm -hmm. And she was basically saying that that hasn't changed much. And that while you do get women, they're like overqualified spice. (laughs) It was some like wonderful turn of phrase like that. And I was like, yes, that is exactly it. Because if you're a woman who wants to succeed in like the film industry, it's almost like you have to work twice as hard to like really prove yourself and show that you have the credentials in order right. to be accepted and to like become part of the crew of something. Um, and yeah, and I just love how freely Carrie was speaking about those things. Yeah. Some of my favorite moments from the Force Awakens press tour was when she was dishing out advice to Daisy. Yes. Because so you funny. really did, you did see that passing of the torch through the, the female leads and yeah. how she was, I mean, she was obviously joking about things like don't go through the, the crew like wildfire. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant Carrie as always. Yeah. But it, it does just quickly show people that, yeah, this is still a sexist industry. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's there's no comparing um, how Princess Leia was objectified with the gold bikini the way that Rey has been. Yeah. Um, fingers crossed that that won't be, you know something that happens to Ray in future I don't, yeah. do not in a million years see Lucasfilm going down that road with her so <laughs> oh, no. so that'll be good but still um you know just the way that Ray's been called a Mary Sue yeah it's just taken on a different guise so exactly and that was something Carrie was never willing to let people forget yeah and she didn't care if it made you uncomfortable and that's awesome because well, it, it kind of should make you uncomfortable because it's wrong. <laughs> well, people, enough people made Carrie feel uncomfortable about the gold bikini. I remember yeah. it was a couple of months ago, she was on the Graham Norton show again. Yes. And that guy from Busted told her oh. about... Oh, God, oh. that made me so angry. I just can't... How can you oh, say God. to a woman's face, yeah. you know, oh, I face, I used to masturbate to you. Oh. Like, it's, come on. Yeah. I know, I know it's a joke, and Carrie makes the joke herself, but it's kind of different when... Mm. It's a young boy, a a man who's talking about his experience as a young boy. To her, it's like she's a real person. Yeah, and you so over the line in Carrie's reaction to that. That, like, she did not want to hear that. You know, I think she gave like this very like quiet, subdued little smile, but she kind of looked down. You could tell she was embarrassed. She did not want to be put in that situation. And I was just like, you idiot. Yeah, Um, exactly. Uh, And. Like, I, I, there's just so much in this book. That's why it's easy to keep on talking about it. Um, but yeah, one of the most fascinating elements in the final part was how she was able to express how these fans, they have this very, very deep, intimate and meaningful relationship with her, but it's completely one-sided. 
So they've built up like this fantasy version of Leia, of Carrie Fisher in their minds. And then they go up to her and they obviously start speaking to her on those terms because they feel a familiarity with her based on like her performances or maybe based on her writing. But obviously there's no true reciprocal feeling there because these are complete strangers to her. (laughs) And I found it really interesting just to read about how she was able to articulate the strangeness of that and just like how weird and unnatural it is to be put in those kinds of positions. I, I, I never got the impression she was like mocking the fans or being ungrateful for like the love and admiration she's received over the years. But at the same time, I appreciated that she wasn't about to pretend that it wasn't weird. <laughs> if that yeah. makes sense. I mean, yeah, you see, you see that just living in a celebrity obsessed culture, people do think that they know people like we, we are talking about Carrie as if we know her because yeah. we've read her writing. Yeah, but it's two different things like knowing her personally must be very different. So the way that we're grieving as fans yeah. can cannot ever be compared to the way her family must be grieving. And I'm, yeah, yeah, my heart goes out to Billy because I just can't imagine losing my mum and then my grandma the next day. Yeah, I just I'm so sad for her. Yeah, it is like unfathomable, <laughs> to be honest, like what she must be going through. Um, yeah, like, is there anything else you'd want to say about Carrie? Like any closing words like before we move on? Um, I think we probably move on. But just to mm. tell people we are going to have a Leia character di- dissection in a future episode. Yes. Um, so we'll really dive into that character and what she means to us Um through the various films and we can touch more on Carrie at that point as well because I know we have a lot more to say yeah um, no definitely yeah yeah I, I hope um anyone who's listening can excuse me for rambling a bit there like it's a kind of situation where it is very like emotional and like I, I just have all these things inside that I want to get out like all especially in relation to the book because like I say it's the first book by Carrie I've read so I really felt this very like intensely powerful connection with her as a person for the first time because I had seen her on stage at Star Wars celebration but that's still very much a performance like she is performing for the fan she's performing in a way that's appropriate for an auditorium filled with Star Wars fanatics um so that's a very different carry to the carry you get in her writing because even though the writing is obviously still a performance it's still something she was preparing for public consumption in the full awareness that everyone can read this. Like there is a greater sense of like intimacy and getting to know the person in the book than like there was to even seeing her on stage. So yeah, like it, it was just an emotional experience on top of an already emotional experience of learning that the actress behind one of my childhood icons had died. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, like lots of layers of emotion. Um, but right, Whew, I think we should probably move on. And we have news, and the first bit of news obviously segues of the sad news about Carrie. And basically, there was a report in the Hollywood Reporter about how Lucasfilm are going to be handling Leia's fate in the films going forward. Um, and yeah, basically, the relevant part of the article said this. Her iconic Princess Leia is set to appear in the next two Star Wars films and insiders tell The Hollywood Reporter that at least two key scenes are planned for Episode 8 and Episode 9, a Leia reunion with Luke Skywalker and a confrontation with Kylo Ren, her son who killed Harrison Ford's Han Solo in 2015's The Force Awakens. 
Details of where those scenes fit into the movies remain unclear, but insiders say Leia was to have a bigger part in episode 9 than episode 8. So, Kirsty, what what did you think when you saw this report? Uh, oh, I know people must be speculating already about how Lucasfilm will proceed because mm. while she's not part of the main, the leads anymore, she's a supporting character. Yes. As they say that they had these specific scenes planned that were presumably going to be very pivotal to the story. Yes. Um, so episode eight, we know, has been filmed. Yeah. Um, and I, this is, again, speculation, but um, I was kind of imagining that Leia and Luke would be reunited towards the end of eight. Yeah. I don't know how true that is because, uh, can we talk about spoilers? Can we give a uh, little spoiler warning? Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. So there are rumours that um, Leia is going to be in a coma for much of episode eight. Mm. So depending on how much they move around, um, it was kind of my understanding that eventually Luke would meet up again with the Resistance and then maybe Leia would wake up and the twins would be reunited at the end of episode eight. Mm. So it's hard to know what they're going to move around because we have so little of that story at the moment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Like, um, it is such a horrible position for everyone to be in. So I'm sure, like, the people at Lucasfilm and, like, the cast and crew, like, on episode eight, I'm sure they're grieving even more intensely than we are because, obviously, they knew Carrie, like, personally. Yeah. Um, so it must be extremely awful for them. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I did actually take some comfort in seeing a post that Oscar Isaac put on Instagram or maybe Facebook. I'm not 100% sure. There was a photo from behind the scenes of episode eight showing Carrie and Mark together. Like, and they were both clearly in costume. Um, and while that alone obviously isn't proof that they have a scene together, it would seem to make that more likely because while like Mark could just be visiting or being filming or be filming on a different stage or something, um, it does make it more probable that there is a scene between Luke and Leia, and I, I really want that to be a thing because yeah, yeah, like that would just be very comforting to have that in Episode Eight. I think so it'd be a real tragedy if not tragedy upon tragedy <laughs> upon tragedy. Yeah, I think a lot of fans were kind of hoping for a reunion with the original three heroes in The Force Awakens. Yeah. And obviously we didn't get that because Luke only appeared at the end. So it would be really special to have this reunion between the two siblings. Yeah. Um, And it was obviously going to be extra emotional watching episode eight now for all the Mm. fans. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I just, we can't know how they're going to take it, right? Like, Mm. because so much of the story is unknown to us as fans. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah like, my feeling is that I really don't want to like speculate in any detail. Like my gut feeling, like, and it's really the only like coherent feeling I have about this right now at all, is that I think it would do carry the greatest honor to just do keep episode eight as it was. Well, she's been speaking. She was speaking mm-hmm. quite um, fondly of episode eight, wasn't she? She was yeah. saying it was her favorite film since Empire. I think she said. Yeah. So yeah, she was. So to change the story now, um, mm. I don't know if they can keep it exactly the way they were intending, but to change it significantly might not sit quite right, considering she was so complimentary of it. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, like, just you have a performance from Carrie, like a complete performance for episode eight, because obviously they finished filming back in summer. There might be things that still need to be done, like ADR and 
like pickup shots and so on and so forth. But for the most part, they should have everything they need in order to fully realise Carrie's role in episode eight. And yeah, I just don't want to see some kind of like bastardization of that. I don't want to see it taken and twisted and reconfigured purely to account for this real life tragedy. I'd rather just see them deal with it in episode nine because yeah. I think that's just the better place to do it. Yeah, episode nine is obviously the place where they're really going to have to figure out how to proceed. Mm. Um, and we just can't speculate on that too much yet because we don't have episode eight yet. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people throwing out ideas like, or oh, maybe they can recast or, oh, well, she was a fan of the Rogue One CGI, so maybe we could do that. And mm. I, I don't think that that would be a good decision but yeah um there's not going to be a good decision here like whatever they choose is going to hopefully be um the least worst option like yeah so yeah like you say i think every decision is a bad decision that there isn't like a great answer in order to resolve this my my personal feeling is that I I really don't want to see them like create a whole CGI Carrie Fisher performance. Oh, no, I so I I think that'd be really bad because to be honest, even though he's been dead for over twenty years, I did find the resurrected CGI Peter Cushing in Rogue One a bit creepy and a bit distasteful. The thing that's harking is that people don't have an emotional investment in him. Yeah, well, you obviously really do in Leia. She's at the heart of the story. Yeah, you know, it's it's her son who's fallen to the dark side, her husband who's died. Mm. So yeah, well, just... I think that's the thing. So, like, I found like Tarkin disrespectful, even though it wasn't like, oh my god, Tarkin's my favorite character. Oh, I love Tarkin so much. It was just because I really liked Peter Cushing as an actor and as a person, he was a lovely, lovely man. Like if you see him in his interviews, he's just so sweet and charming. Um, so I was able to like cr- develop affection for him through that basically, and through his other films. But with Carrie, it would be even more intense, like you say, because this is a character we love. She's one of the heroes, and she was in Force Awakens, and she's going to be in Episode 8. You know? like, And in a way, you can like disassociate yourself from Tarkin and from Peter Cushing, because he is a min- relatively minor part, and he's an actor who died decades ago. And I just don't think you could have that kind of separation with Carrie and Leia. It, it just wouldn't work, I don't think. No, I don't, I don't think that's something that they would pursue. Yeah. But we'll just have to see. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's one of those things where you just can't have an in-depth discussion about it because we just don't know enough. The next story, thankfully, <laughs> is going to be a much more lighthearted and hopefully positive. Um, and basically it's that Adam Driver was being interviewed by Larry King about his current project, so Silence and Patterson, and Larry brought up some Star Wars questions, and the answers were rather interesting. There's two particular questions I'm going to focus on here, even though he did talk about Star Wars more. Um, so the first one was another thing I've drawn out of him, that it happened, <laughs> as referring to a previous question. Do you live in episode 8? That's a direct question, Kylo. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it depends on what your idea of living is. Okay, and then the next question, and the more interesting one, in my opinion, is this one. Without giving away any spoilers, what's one aspect of Kylo Ren you're excited for fans to see in the next film? This is such a general answer, but humanity. Even though it's very much a blockbuster movie, and I'm aware of that, 
There was no taking that for granted and that we were forced to be general. There were a lot of plot points that we knew were operating in the first one and that we get to explain more in the second one that make the bo both of them make sense. But they do kind of feel socially active to me too. George Lucas originally, a lot of Star Wars was in response to Vietnam. What I remember talking a lot with JJ and Ryan about was this idea of terrorism and two sides being morally justified to behave however they wanted to in order to get what they thought was absolutely correct. Um, so yeah, what, what did you think about that interview, Kirsty? I was very happy with this answer. <laughs> well done, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for being a ray of light. Yeah. Um, I actually tweeted about this the other day because it reminded me of our discussion a few episodes ago about Kylo's future and we were speculating and kind of using some things that Ryan Johnson had been um, citing as references for episode eight mm -hmm. in terms of um, Jungian theory and Robert Bly, yes. the poet, um, who talks a lot about things like humanizing um, people who are originally perceived as monsters Mm. Um, or don't don't have the best and healthy connection with their emotions, which Kylo Ren obviously doesn't. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think this really bodes well for our understanding of the character. Mm. And I'm really excited to see how this does end up playing into episode eight. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's he's not giving an awful lot away because he can't. Um, but that, that idea of humanity coming mm. through um, in the second part of a story about a person who you know, is considered evil and monstrous yeah. within the narrative at the moment is encouraging. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I have seen like quite a lot of surprise about these comments because I think for a lot of people, understandably, Kylo killing his father, that was the point of no return. That marked him just going deeper and deeper into darkness without like any possibility of return to the light for him. And while I can understand where those people are coming from, I think this comment, it, it does kind of point away from that. Because if you're going to humanise this character, that does suggest that there's something more interesting and nuanced going on than just, oh, look, he's so, so evil now. <laughs> he's killed his dad. No more conflict. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like I think we've thought for a long time that that's not where they're going to go with Kylo. And, yeah, it's just interesting and like quite satisfying in a way yeah see, i really like adam back us up like that the part where he says there are a lot of plot points operating in the first film that we'll then get to explain in the second one mm. um obviously we were hoping for a story that cohesively ties together that's a good yes. thing um, but i have seen some fans express concern about how um the story will fit together and whether things really will make sense because obviously there were different writers for episode seven versus mm. episode eight so that's good that um, you know, Ryan's story will expand on what we already know from The Force Awakens. So there'll be things that happen there um, that they'll be able to go back and explain a little bit more that will kind of shine light on the characters and the motives and the actions yeah. um, that really enrich them and our understanding of them. So that's great. Yeah, no, definitely. That's pretty much how I feel. And like you say, it's reassuring to know that like, it's not like they've forgotten the dangling threads from Force Awakens and the questions raised by Force Awakens. They're clearly conscious of those and there are going to be answers. Because a lot of the frustration people seem to have with Force Awakens seems to be tied to, like, how ambiguous everything is. And I totally get that. But I, I kind of feel like saying it's not like you're never going to get answers. You will get answers. 
they're just in the next film. And right. I, I understand why that's annoying, but I, I do think we need patience. It's like, I think it must have been very annoying to watch Empire Strikes Back in 1980 <laughs> and have all these very, very pressing questions on your mind. It's like, I know back then people, they thought Darth Vader might be lying. Mm-hmm. They thought, oh, that can't be true. It's impossible. <laughs> Much like Luke. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so they kind but of denied it's, it's it. It's all part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, Star Wars has always been about these like crazy debates that extend for many, many hours. Um, and yeah, I think that's a fun way of engaging with it and really like asking all these fun questions like about what does this mean? What does that mean? What does that look mean? What does that word of dialogue mean? <laughs> and so on and so forth. Yeah. I I I know this is probably not what they're doing, but I just feel as a as a Kylo Ren fan mm-hmm. that they're they're throwing me a bone here. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you, Adam. Yeah, thank you. We needed it. It's been pretty crap so far. <laughs> and not in terms of Kylo Ren, by the way. I mean, Carrie and everything. It's been a bit of a bummer between now and the last podcast. So yeah, yeah. this story was good. This yes. story was like something positive. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were already excited about episode eight, but every piece of news we hear about it just gets us more excited. So yeah, exactly. It's really awesome. So yeah, I'm super hyped for that film. I can't wait for it. Um, right. And then the last piece of news is about the Han Solo movie. And it's a report from Variety saying that Woody Harrelson is being considered for the role of Han's mentor in the Han Solo spinoff. And sources tell Variety that while talks is still in the early stages, Harrelson is the top choice to play Han Solo's mentor in the upcoming Star Wars spin-off, spin-off <laughs> starring Alden Ehrenreich. The ensemble cast of the Han Solo movie has already begun filling with rising stars. The executives wanted this role to go to an actor of considerable clout and start a meeting with actors over the past several weeks. Um, so yeah, what did you think when you heard that Woody Harrelson might be involved? I was really pleased because I love Woody Harrelson. Awesome. I think he's a fantastic actor. Have you seen True Detective? No, I haven't. I've heard such oh. amazing things. I, yeah, I, I really you should want watch to. it. He's fantastic in that. Matthew McConaughey is like the, the celebrated well, he seems like the celebrated actor of that that film, um, mm-hmm. that series. Um, <laughs> but Woody Harrelson is great in it as well. They they really bounce off each other well. Okay, awesome. um, are they both leads? Yes, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it was because it was like off the back of McConaughey's Oscar win, but he just seemed to get more of the limelight in terms of the yeah the the press and reception that the the show got. But he's fantastic in that, and I love him in other films as well, like Natural Born Killers. Um, obviously this would be a very different role um, <laughs> yes. I've seen a lot of people kind of because he would be considered the mentor people are obviously drawing a parallel of his role in the Hunger Games mm, yes so I don't think that 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 film or well, the, the trilogy or whatever it's uh, four films I suppose um, <laughs> I trilogy. don't think they gave yes um, I'm not the biggest fan of those stories but um, he, he's fine in that but I don't think he was given the best material to work with the role to me doesn't seem super meaty yeah um, I, I must admit that i think that's the only film i've seen him in the oh, okay. games ones right um, and i liked him in those like say it's not the most testing performance an actor could possibly be asked to give um but i think he was great in it um i doubt that was what they had in mind though for when they were thinking oh who are we going to cast in the han solo movie i don't they thought oh let's get that guy from the hunger games <laughs> right i don't think it's about that he's very good at playing kind of uh jaded a little bitter characters that um yeah. you know are 
are worldly and wise but have that edge to them um and i and in a han solo movie where you're obviously seeing the origins of this orphan smuggler mm. I, I feel like that would fit fit really well yes so yeah no like i, I really liked him in the hunger games like I say not the biggest or best part but i did like what he was able to bring to that and yeah for my limited exposure to him like i'd be excited to see him in that film um, I did see some people say that was originally meant to be like a Han mentor character in an early draft of The Empire Strikes Back. Um, I think the one written by Lee Brackett, um, who's like a female sci-fi writer. George Lucas got to write a script. Mm. Um, and then, unfortunately, she passed away um, before like they could get a final script prepared. Um, and yeah, like I, I could see them doing that because... Like they've been doing it since Force Awakens. They've been going back to these early concepts and ideas, like from the Ralph McQuarrie concept art and stuff. So I could see them thinking, hmm, what ideas have already been in the mix about Han Solo, and which one ideas do we really like and think we could do something with here? Yeah, I really like that about Lucasfilm that they go back and recycle ideas that didn't quite come into fruition in the in the past, but that yeah. they can put a fresh stamp on. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think that's a good way to do it. Don't like recycle the things that actually came to be realized right recycle the things that were discarded for one reason or another and see if you can like reconfigure them in an interesting way and do something with them yeah i feel like that's a good way of honoring george lucas's original visions for things yeah um yeah obviously lots of different people worked on these things it wasn't all george lucas by himself yeah Um, but yeah it kind of keeps that spirit of star wars alive so yeah it's, it's a good way of keeping traditions going um right so you ready to move on to the spotlight yeah okay cool well this time we are going to talk a bit more about rogue one but this time it's going to be a different discussion from before because obviously we've both seen it several more times and we also wanted to touch upon like the reaction to it like how people have been receiving rogue one and the kinds of like dialogues that have um rose up around it um so yeah Kirsty, how many times have you seen it now Three times. Same. How about you? Yeah. I don't plan on seeing it any more times in the cinema because there are so many other films I need to see. Yes. Um, yeah, it's yeah. that time of year when you're getting all the amazing films out. And it, it costs quite a bit of money to go to the cinema every week. So, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, but obviously I'll get the Blu-ray and watch it much more when when that comes out. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we did our initial reactions and it was literally the morning after we'd seen them. So it was, it was very much first impressions and our understanding of certain characters and plot points and things have inevitably evolved since then because yes. you, you know you go and see it and you notice more i remember the, the second time i saw it i made a conscious effort to focus more on um the supporting characters like chirrut and Bays. yes um because there's just so much to take in the first viewing yeah so you just you can't focus on everything all the time yeah um so i kind of have a complex relationship with this film i guess because I really like it in certain ways and other ways I just don't feel like it quite hits the mark. Yeah. Um, so I like it. I think it's a very entertaining film, but it's not my favorite Star Wars film. Mm. Um, if it's other people's favorite, that's great. I'm really happy for them. You know, yes. um, if they feel that uh, this is more of their kind of Star Wars, that's fantastic. We don't yeah. all have to agree. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I've noticed in the fandom that um, it's become kind of this way to start... <sighs> bashing on the force awakens (laughs) yes and not in because you know criticizing a film on its own merits is perfectly fine obviously Mm. um and people can do whatever they want so i'm not telling people what they can and can't do but um maybe this is just a a 
a part of fandom in terms of like what once a new film comes out it's like the the new film gloss has kind of shifted off the film that came out a year year previously and then people start to um compare the two and it becomes kind of unfavorable yeah What, what do you think yeah no i do think it's like natural that there's going to be these comparisons drawn between Rogue One and Force Awakens because obviously they're the only two Disney Star Wars films we have at the moment. Yeah. So I do think it's very natural and justified to draw those comparisons. Um, and I understand why people are doing it. Um, I'm just not sure about how valid some of them are because they are such different films. Yeah, it is apples uh, and oranges really, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, like I said, I've seen it three times now. And like you, I'm not sure I'm going to see it again. I might because I have a friend come in to visit who might want to see it. But like, and, and this isn't because I hate Rogue One. It's just because I've seen it three times. So I'm not sure I need to see it again. Like, I'm kind of hoping we'll go and see La La Land <laughs> instead right. of Rogue One. Because um, I'm super hyped for La La Land and I have not seen it. So I'll just be tempted to see that overseeing Rogue One for a fourth time. Um but yeah, like you, I have this like complex relationship with it. The first night when I went to see it, the first day of release, I enjoyed it, but I had quite big problems with it, which is actually very much like my initial reaction to Force Awakens. And then my second viewing, it was at the Science Museum in London. And that was amazing because that is such a fantastic venue to watch any film at. And I know it sounds like I'm advertising the Science Museum. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm not being paid. It, it It's just the kind of place where the atmosphere is so great and the sound is so great. And the picture is so huge and enveloping that all of that adds to the experience and it makes it so much more wonderful and immersive. So I came out of that screening liking it more than I had the first screening. And then I went to see it a third time, this time with my dad. And like, again, I kind of felt about it how I'd felt about it the first time in that it was an enjoyable film and I felt it was good and it worked. But there were these like big issues I had of it and these like nagging problems, especially to do with the characters and their relationships. Um, so, yeah, like I'd say it's a good film, but very flawed film. I think yeah. that's my assessment. I mean, like, I remember when we were talking about it in podcasts before, we because of you know the the reshoots and kind of stuff that we'd been hearing about the production, we didn't expect it to be a perfect film. No. So it's not like I was disappointed or let down in some way. I just don't think it's perfect, and that's okay. Like we can criticize certain elements of it without being considered haters, or <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, because I do like the film overall. Yeah. Um, I just yeah, personally, I prefer The Force Awakens, but equally, it's not like I'm. There's this thing in Star Wars fandom, I don't know if you've noticed, but people really love to rank the films <laughs> yes. as if it says something about them as a person or a fan. <laughs> yes. I don't know, because I feel like I like all of the films for different reasons. Mm. So it's, you know, I, 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 that's not something that I particularly care about doing, but, um, you know, yeah. it would kind of fit in where Rogue One is in my order of preference for Star Wars movies because it, it depends on your mood for the day it depends what characters you're interested in um, speculating on at the time like mm-hmm. all sorts of things so yeah yeah I think um, like one of the most interesting things I've had with Rogue One is I just haven't had like any great desire to talk about it or discuss it and obviously that's kind of natural and inevitable in many ways because it is a standalone and it has like a definite ending because 
spoilers, <laughs> everyone dies. Um, so it's not like any characters' fates are left hanging in the balance. The only dangling threads from Rogue, Rogue One are the threads that are picked up immediately after in A New Hope. Yeah. So it's not like there's this great room to like imagine, or oh, what did these characters get up to afterwards? Or oh, I wonder how these relationships could develop and stuff like you can with Force Awakens. And in a way that just kind of makes it less fun for me because part of my enjoyment of Force Awakens is I really do like the intense engagement that it kind of inspires by having all these mysteries and leaving all these questions open. And I totally get that for some people, that's why that's not a very good film because it just drives them insane because there's so much that's left unanswered. And I think that's very valid and I understand it. Yeah, I was wondering if it was partly a response to the frustration around the mysteries of The Force Awakens Mm -hmm. and the concern about whether, you know, um, after the trilogy's done with as a whole, will that film by itself stand up? Or is it considered more of a prologue for episode eight? Yeah. So we can't know that. We can't know either way for sure yet. I really enjoy The Force Awakens on its own merits. But again, I guess I'm more of a fan like you in terms of really enjoying the ambiguity. Yes. um, That... There, there is clearly more going on beneath the surface, but we don't know what it is yet. So yeah. it's head, it's head cannons galore, and that's why you get a lot of um, quite fierce debate because so many people see such different things in the characters and what's really going on. Yeah, but that's what's fun for me. So yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Um, I think we'd be able to talk a bit more about how like Rogue One compares to Force Awakens and like how other people are seeing that comparison later on. Um, one thing I was curious about is, like, I'm guessing you saw it with a range of other people. Is that right? Like Rogue One when you went to see it in the cinema? Yeah. Um, I think the first night I saw it with uh, my husband and mother-in-law, who are both Star Wars fans, but mm-hmm. aren't ridiculously obsessed like I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so they know, they know I have the podcast. They were asking me lots of questions and they hadn't really kept up with the news beforehand. So they were yeah. asking various things um i don't think they knew that people like princess leia and tarkin were going to be in it yes. so that was exciting for them yeah um and uh, there were a couple of friends that came with us as well but they're pretty casual fans as well yeah and then um the second time uh, i went by myself mm-hmm. so that was kind of good for just kind of really paying attention to certain things that i kind of glossed over in the first one yeah and then the third I went with my sisters who had been visiting over Christmas and they loved it oh nice um but they're they're kind of I don't like to use the term casual fans because I feel like I'm <laughs> gatekeeping or something but they're just you know they like Star Wars but they don't care about it that much you know they're like oh that was a good film yeah cool I might, I might see that again you know yeah. like the old you mean they're Vader. not unhealthily obsessed no <laughs> it sounds like gatekeeping but it's actually like no I'm the nerd I'm the one with the problem <laughs> I'm definitely yeah. not judging them. They have a sense of perspective. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Yeah, um, so th- everyone I went um, with to see it, ha- you know, they enjoyed it. Mm. Um, there was a little bit of confusion around who the characters were and where all the, you know, what the various planets were and things. And that's yeah. why they kind of had those labels on the bottom, presumably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't hear anyone in who I went to see it with say that they thought it was better or worse than The Force Awakens because they were kind of, they acknowledged that both films were different, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, what about you? Uh, yeah, like um, the friend who I went to see it with the first see it with on the first night, she had a pretty interesting response to it because I I think she's probably like your sisters and that she's like 
very casual. So she'll see a film and if she likes it, she likes it. If she doesn't, she doesn't. And she's very much able to like have an articulate, intelligent conversation with you about the film. But she's definitely not like deeply immersed in fandom and stuff like we are. She's much more on the casual end than the fanatic end. Um, and yeah, like she's just explained how like a lot of it didn't really like gel for her and it was kind of confusing for her as someone who's not intimately familiar with the workings of the original trilogy in particular um and yeah like I, I can understand that because if you think about like the ending how Rogue One ends with like Darth Vader like storming in and massacring those troops don't get me wrong awesome so good like every time my heart has been thumping like mad it's been a great cinematic experience for me but in like narrative terms that's such a strange like note to end the film on Mm. you know that scene and then the layer scene um because that is completely beholden to another film like if you came to rogue one expecting it to be its own thing because it'd be marketed as a standalone you would be confused by that ending because that alone, it like tethers it completely to a new hope. And I understand why they did that. And I think it was kind of inevitable. Um, but yeah, it's it it's like a reminder of the place and culture that Star Wars has. And the way that we're still not at a point where you can have a truly standalone Star Wars film. Because those other films are considered so crucial to pop culture. Yeah. And it's like, well, if you haven't seen the others, then that's your problem. Get to it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I am wondering, are they going to be able to do truly standalone Star Wars films? Like, mm-hmm. com- no characters from the original trilogy or even the prequels or sequel trilogy now. Yeah. Like, because just the, the level of exposition with Rogue One, like... I was reading Catalyst beforehand. Um, I have the Rogue One novelization on my nightstand because I feel like I didn't get enough of the new characters. Like I really liked them, but it was like a a brief, you know, cursory look through them really. Yeah. Um, so I know there's going to be stuff in that story that is going to kind of add to it. Like, uh, you know, in the same way that the Force Awakens novelization did, as much as I didn't love the writing, it had these interesting details from earlier versions of the scripts that adds to your understanding of the characters. Yes. So I'm looking forward to reading that. But at the same time, I know over 99% of the people who saw that film will not ever read that book or yeah. Catalyst mm. or anything else that comes out. If they have like a Cassian book or Chirrut yeah. and Bay's book, we will read those things. Mm. But most of the audience won't. And I'm just wondering how much they really got out of it. Yeah. Um, so you kind of, even though I was like, oh, with Vader and Leia and Tarkin, it does kind of tether it to the original trilogy. So it's not a true standalone. If they hadn't had those characters there, would people have really understood it or understood why it mattered? Or I don't know. Yeah, it's, no, it's interesting so to think about. It's like I think it's impossible to detach Rogue One, the film, as a standalone from our cultural understandings of Star Wars and our not pre-existing knowledge of Star Wars. Like Rogue One relies on you having that pre-existing knowledge. Which is why I would never, ever in a million years recommend Rogue One to someone who has not seen another Star Wars film. No way. (laughs) So, like, I have a friend who's never seen another Star Wars film. And she was kind of interested in Rogue One. And I think she'd heard the marketing about it being standalone. And so she she was like, oh, I might go and see this. And I was like, no, do not. (laughs) You (laughs) won't understand anything. (laughs) Exactly. Because I, I feel it did everything it needed to. Like, really. Like, if you... like 
can remember what happens in the original trilogy, I do think that Rogue One explained things enough. But you do need that prior knowledge. Um, and yeah, I just... I, I, I guess I kind of see... Like, sometimes you see the implication where, oh, if you don't read the books beforehand and if you don't put in this extra effort to understand it, then it's your problem, not the problem of the film. And I'm like, no, we don't hold other films to this standard. Like, just because there are, like, other books and, like, cartoons like Rebels and Clone Wars and stuff out there that can add further context and enrich your understanding of Rogue One... Rogue One should still be able to exist as its own entity. Because, like, the friend who I went to see Rogue One with on the first night, she's she loved Force Awakens. And she said that it was just because Force Awakens worked well as a standalone. She mm. understood everyone's emotions. She understood everyone's motives. And she didn't feel like Force Awakens was dependent on the previous films. And I think that's the greatest achievement of Force Awakens, it, and that it does make it accessible for everyone, whatever their prior knowledge. Because that friend who I told not to see Rogue One, I might well tell her to go and watch Force Awakens. Because I do think she could get that and she could appreciate that. Yeah, I think The Force Awakens is designed as a good introduction to yeah. Star Wars. Um, partly because, as, as people have noted, um, it kind of does have a lot of references to A New Hope and to Empire as, as well, to a lesser extent. Yes. Um, but it does a really good job of establishing the new characters and you end up, I can't speak for everyone, but I end up caring more about them within the story, Ray, Finn, Kylo Ren and Poe, yeah. than Han, Leia and Luke. Absolutely. Like, I think it's great yeah. that they got the original cast back. You know, it, it makes the film special, but they they did a really good job with the new characters. You are invested in their story now. They're going to, you know, the, the torch has been passed. Yeah. Um, and that's really what episode eight is going to cement. Um, that yeah. you're following Ray and Finn's hero journeys. It's mm. not just about catching up with Luke Skywalker, seeing what he's been up to for 30 years. You know, that's part of it, obviously. We're eager to see that, but it's not the reason that these stories exist. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, so there's, there's been all this talk about nostalgia for The Force Awakens, but there's a lot of nostalgia in Rogue One. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, so I see everyone, like, praising Rogue One for like doing all these like daring and original and new things for Star Wars. And it's like, yes, we've never really had a plot like this in Star Wars before. Like the structure of the plot is new and the tone is new and the fact that everyone dies at the end, that's new. Like that they're all new and refreshing elements and that's great. But I like you say, I do find it funny the people who will criticise The Force Awakens for being too beholden to nostalgia, while at the same time praising Rogue One to the heavens for like eschewing that, when Rogue One has completely shameless and irrelevant cameos from, say, like Ponda Baba and oh, um, God. Dr. Ezvan. And I hate like, that one. <laughs> yeah, and like C3PO and R2D2. Like those two cameos alone, just off the top of my head, completely irrelevant and pointless. Yeah, it's interesting because. Um... In some ways, Rogue One expands the understanding of Star Wars as a, a galaxy, right? Like, that you have all these new planets and new people and everything. And then, you know, Pondavava, like, being there on Jeddah, it's like, <laughs> come on! That instantly makes the story seem so small. Yeah. Like, that he, what, he just ends up on Tatooine straight after, and... Uh, I don't know. It seems... I get, I get why it's there, you know, there's this element of corniness to Star Wars. 
mm. it can't take itself too seriously. Yeah. But but putting that cameo in there, I I didn't actually mind C three PO and R two that much. Yeah. Because it was so brief, and it you know it was just like oh that's nice to see them. Um, but yeah, seeing them on Jeddah, it was just like really. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's that a different one was planet. The worst. That was yeah. definitely the worst because at least C three PO and R two D two is logical for them to be there. I I think it was just because it felt very jarring to me. As in like, whoa, why are they there? <laughs> kind of, like yeah. they had absolutely no place in the story. Like, and that's fine. It is just fan service. But like, say I, I, I just struggle with it sometimes when I see people laying into Force Awakens for nostalgia and then loving Rogue One despite all this obvious nostalgia. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- so, I think I, if people sorry. interpret the nostalgia for the Force Awakens as like. A carbon copy of the plot, which I yeah. don't agree with. And mm. um, I think the plot that revolves around the new characters is actually quite distinct, um, especially the interactions between Rey and Kylo Ren. Yes. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's a different kind of nostalgia, I guess. That, as you said, Rogue One follows a different kind of story. Um, it's more about the resistance soldier side of things, mm. but it does rely on these cameos and little nods and like, um, Oh, I have a bad feeling about this. You know, oh, yeah. are we going to, are we going to hear that in every Star Wars film? <laughs> I have a horrible feeling that we, will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so I suppose this kind of sentiment, like against force awakens, it's like summed up by this Forbes article, um, which is rogue one is br- brutal, beautiful, and better than the force awakens. That's the headline. Um, and yeah, then like a paragraph from that, just explain in that position, um, is I understand a certain amount of homage and fan service in movies like this, but I think even dedicated fans may agree that The Force Awakens takes things too far at times. I mean, it's not just returning characters and shots that are set up the same way. Practically every plot point in The Force Awakens is drawn from the original trilogy. That's wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are That's... several scenes I can think of that do not reference, like they are not in A New Hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um... Exactly. And I, I almost get frustrated. So I have the feeling that by focusing on like these superficial similarities, like, oh, Force Awakens and A New Hope both have a big super weapon that destroys planets, um, which they both do. Like people ignore the first stuff that really actually matters, like the characters, for example. Mm. Um, and it's almost like people devalue those things. They devalue the importance of having likable characters that you are interested in, and more importantly, that you really genuinely care about and root for. So I think that The Force Awakens does that in a way that seems so effortless that you almost forget that it's even happening. You, just by the end, you're like, oh, I like these people. I care about these people. Um, and I think you, because of the ease and the light touch with which that is done, like people don't realize how hard it is to pull that off and do it well. And I think if Rogue One like did anything, or like in terms of the comparison to Force Awakens, it made me realize like what a Marvel Force Awakens was in terms of its characters. I'm really doing a good job of setting them up and like get getting you invested in them. So like you say, in The Force Awakens, I ultimately care much, much more about the new characters in that film than I do the old ones. And that's a real, real feat when you consider what icons like Han, Luke and Leia are. You know, I'm yeah. less interested in their stories than I am the stories of the new generation. And I appreciate that that won't be true for everyone. Um, yeah. 
not I'm, I don't want to generalize too much but maybe some older fans uh, went to see The Force Awakens because they wanted to see Han, Leia and Luke yeah um, that wasn't the reason I went to see it so maybe that's why I enjoyed it more because they did take a back seat they were in the story but it didn't revolve around them yeah um, but yeah I'm We've heard it that um, you know now that Rogue One's been released and The Force Awakens has been out and Episode Eight has been filmed, um, Kathleen Kennedy and the rest of the Lucasfilm story group and that are going to have a meeting and kind of decide where things are going to go from here mm-hmm. in terms of um, the rest of the saga and what they want to do for future standalones. Yeah, and she suggested that there's a possibility that they would just do standalones now, mm. uh, but they don't know. Yes, um, and so we so far we only have the Han Solo movie. Um, announced instead of aside from Rogue One, um, which is kind of in the vein of like a Marvel origin story. That's at mm. least kind of what I understand it to be. Um, so that's not a true standalone in terms of being brand new characters and settings and things like that. Yeah. So I'm really interested to see what the next announcement will be. Yeah. Whether whether that's going to be another character origin story or something that does spin off from either the original trilogy or the prequels. Mm. Um. Some people have been floating the idea of a, a Knights of the Old Republic story. So that's, I would love that. Yeah, so that's set thousands yeah. of years into the past. It's, you know, mm-hmm. these the traditional old Jedi setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would be really interested to see how that would be received by a general audience. Yeah. Because I'm sure they're not even aware of that era or anything about <laughs> it. Yeah. Or characters like Bastila and Revan. Yeah. No, um, I think that would be a fantastic way to really really prove whether this standalone concept can work because if you do that you are really cutting all ties yeah because you're so far back in the past you can't have cameos from c3po and r2d2 they haven't been built yeah, <laughs> they so do not that exist would, so that's that would if it succeeded if it was a good story it would really expand people's understanding of what the star wars universe is because yeah. so far the universe is kind of bound by its characters in this specific era yes so the prequels were contextualized because, okay, well, yes, this is in the past and it's more of like a gilded age that's focused more on the failings of the politics at the time, but mm. we care about it because it's Anakin Skywalker's fall. Yeah. But if it's something that's completely removed, I'm just very interested to see whether that would succeed. Yeah. And I think that would be like, to Lucasfilm, what Guardians of the Galaxy was like to Marvel. Yeah. Because Guardians of the Galaxy, like... I think maybe a tad overrated. I really like it, but I, I'm not quite sure it's a masterpiece like some people think. Um, I've only seen it once, so I don't remember an awful lot, but I enjoyed it and I'll go yeah. and see the one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty much how I feel. Um, but that film, that, that was a genuine risk and people were right to describe it as such because that did askew all those ingredients that we were familiar with from prior Marvel films. So like being on Earth for a start, like that alone detaches it in a very big way from the familiar and comforting tropes of Marvel films. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd like to see Lucasfilm take a big risk along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful because I want them to keep creating good Star Wars films. Yeah, there's going to be a certain point where they would run out of ideas that would revolve around the original trilogy. Yeah. So the Rogue One idea, it seems like that was in the works for quite some time. And it makes sense, you know, like, how did they get the plans from the, for the Death Star? You know, mm. like, that's a, so that's the question that fans would have been asking themselves. Yeah. Um, but how many other questions are there that they would need to fill in the gaps? Because part of the fun of being a Star Wars fan is that there is so much mystery around certain things that yeah. the original trilogy glosses over certain elements. Um, so people can kind of dive into that as much or as little as they want. 
Yeah. Um, do we need every plot point or inconsistency or <laughs> I can't explain, but yeah. I don't know. I, I really don't think so. Wait until we get like a Star Wars story about the Ewoks. That, <laughs> that'll be the truest test. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, they already exist. It's like Caravan of Courage in Battle for Endor. We already have our Star Wars stories. <laughs> with with the character spin-offs like the the Han Solo one, I'm interested to see which characters would then be selected for that because, you know, we had we had a Boba Fett one in the works. That wasn't something that I was particularly excited about seeing. <laughs> yes, uh, I know that I'm not about to disparage Boba Fett because I know some people are really into him and that's great. You know, like if he's your favorite character, power to you. You're probably not listening to our podcast because <laughs> yes. you know it's just a different kind of um, reason for being in the fandom. Yeah. Um, but again, I think part of that relies on the fact that Boba Fett is such a mystery. So, yeah, would they really be thrilled with a Boba Fett movie or is it going to inevitably fail because it doesn't meet every fan's headcanon because you've been building up this idea of who he is in your own head for decades? Yeah. Um, so someone like Han Solo is almost more, there's more of a consensus for what and who he is, you know? Yeah. Um. And uh, I would be interested to see, are, are there any going to be any character spin-offs that are for female characters or, you know, characters? Dream on, that, honey. Uh, you know. Yeah. No, it's good before, to dream big. It's good to dream big. Oh, my God. <laughs> before all this happened, you know, I said I would be, even though I love Han, he is my favorite character in the original trilogy. Um, I think I would be more interested in seeing a Leia spin-off, yeah. honestly. Mm. I think uh, there's more potential there. Like yeah. see teenage princess with female mentor, perhaps. Yeah. Like kicking ass. Of Maybe we'll still get that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't no, know how many of these films I'll end up being. So I know people have been talking, clamoring for an Obi Wan one, but I, I don't want them to only be about white men. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Um, would you be alright if I just quickly turn the discussion to talking about that Teen Vogue? Oh yeah, go for it. Yeah, because yeah. I know we're running a bit tight on time, so I thought yes. I should keep things moving. <laughs> um, right, basically there was a Teen Vogue article, and the topic was essentially about the lack of romance in Rogue One. And yeah, I'm just going to quote a bit from it. It goes, In a way, Rogue One is a vessel for the events that spark the entire original Star Wars story as we know it. The mission clearly carries much more weight than anything else, including the actual lives of Jin and Cassian, and therefore anything that might have existed between them. They are rebels, but with a cause, and shoehorning a romantic side plot would not only distract from the story, but potentially detract from the jobs to which they are devoted. And while it's common to try to look for signs of flirtation or tension between two characters playing opposite one another, it's important to recognise when those things simply aren't there. Just because there's two characters sharing a lot of screen time together in a movie does not automatically signify a romance. Um, right. However, the significance of Jin and Cassian's lack of romance goes beyond the plot, plot structure and the Death Star is a huge part of what makes Jin a feminist hero we've needed for so long. While Star Wars has brought us strong female characters before, it would be wrong to dismiss the strength of Leia, Padme and Rey. This is truly the first time we've seen a strong female character independently at the centre of a Star Wars film. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, basically this article, it kind of fills me with conflicted feelings in several ways. First of all, like, I, I think it's really good that Teen Vogue, in the first place, it has these kinds of articles, like focusing on these kinds of like issues and going into analysis about films. That's really awesome. So I think if you say Teen Vogue 
to a regular person on the street and like, oh, what do you think they write articles about? It'd probably be like, oh, what kind of nail polish you should use? Or what's the cute new sweater you should buy? Uh, that's oh, they've been doing some excellent coverage of the election and yeah. the politics that have been coming out since then. I've, yeah, I've been really impressed with the quality yeah. of their stuff. So Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I wanted to draw attention to because it's just like the words Teen Vogue. They might automatically have like disparaging associations but that is not what they've been doing recently they've actually been producing some really strong journalism which is really to be applauded um i i think my issue with the piece is not that it exists i think it's awesome to have different perspectives on things and to have discussions i think it's just i disagree with the premise um like and I think the main objectionable thing I find to it is that the claim that it's apparently the first time we've seen a strong female character independently at the centre of a Star Wars film. Um, because that's very strange to me, because Rey in Force Awakens was much more the independent heroine of that film than Jin is the independent heroine of Rogue One. Yeah, I think Kathleen I'm... Kennedy's actually talked about that. Um, yeah. I've got a quote here from... Yahoo Movies in July, where she said, um, Jin, even though she's the lead in Rogue One, she's very much a part of a team and an ensemble group. So yeah. the character operates in a way that's quite different from the story we're telling with Rey. Mm. So that says something quite different. Yeah, exactly. Because like with Jin, like I, her character would be dead, literally dead, if it were not for the team around her. Because she needs Cassian to come in at the last minute and shoot Krennic for Krennic can shoot Jin. You know, they are dependent on each other. She needs the team and the team need her. Like, and that's awesome. I think that's a great dynamic to have. Um, but yeah, like, and I just find it strangely disparaging towards Rey to act like she's somehow not an independent, strong female character at the center of her own movie. It's kind of a strange assertion because when you meet Rey, she is literally independent in that she's living in utter <laughs> yeah. isolation. She's exactly. not independent in that she has a huge amount of freedom because she's kind of beholden to the system with Uncar Plutt. Mm. Um, but I don't think that she answers to anyone else in the movie. Like, she doesn't defer to male characters and do things on their terms. Yeah. No, exactly. And, yeah, I just find it interesting how that is what Ray's become in people's minds somehow. And I just kind of feel that people need to watch Force Awakens again. <laughs> I mean, it's okay for everyone to have a different idea, but I, yeah, it's just, I don't know. Like, I, I also have an issue, and I know this is a growing sentiment in um, entertainment analysis and criticism, that there's this idea that um, for something to be feminist, a female character shouldn't have a romance. Yeah. And I just don't understand that because I'm a feminist and I'm in love. I don't just yes. no, it's a fundamental part of many people's not everyone's but many people's life experiences yeah um, and depending on how well written the romance is and if it's not well written yeah there can be issues with a female character's agency mm. or the idea that the, the plot would be too much revolved around romance at the cost of anything else but yeah I, you know that's a case of execution and the, the writer's priorities and skills yeah so uh, I don't I don't quite get that. Maybe it's in response to um, a traditional over-reliance on things like Disney princesses needing romance as a, as a resolution to their stories. Yeah. Or a prince to literally come and rescue them. But that's not the way those stories have to be told. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly the place where it's coming from. Like, And 
I just think the position, like that exemplified in this article, like, understand the place it's coming from, and it is coming from a good place. It's just it does lack nuance. So it is like this whole idea where it says that um, Jin and Cassian are focused on their job, so there'd be no place for a romantic subplot. And it's like, yeah, sure, like, it would be completely irrelevant and silly to just have a random scene where Jin and Cassian just have a candlelit dinner together. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I'm really scared about the mission, Cassian. (laughs) Oh, Jin, I think we should fall in love and kiss. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that would be weird. People understanding romance seems to be like an all or nothing. (laughs) You know, like, what I understood from their interactions, and I completely get that it's up for interpretation. I think this was intentional. Mm. I think there was this case of an understated what might have been, and it was supposed to lend an emotional weight to what happened to them. Yeah. That they were so young, and they'd sacrificed so much, and it meant that they wouldn't enjoy this future together. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly what they were going for. And it's like, it's, it's great to be focused on work, and you're like mission and to get the job done which is exactly what they do in Rogue One but in real life people's careers are not the sum of their lives they have like emotions and relationships beyond their immediate task and those emotions and relationships they tend to inform why they do their job you know they there's like a reciprocal relationship there but that's the thing like um you know Jin, you can say she's an independent female character. Of course she is. She has her own mind and her own motives and everything. But her motives are driven by this father-daughter dynamic that she has, you know, with Galen. When she yes. sees that hologram, that is a turning point for her. Mm. But also her dynamic with Cassian is important and, and matters to her story and her growth yeah. as a character. Doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly romantic. Um, people are free to interpret that however they want. Yeah, um, because it doesn't it doesn't really matter if you see them as close friends or something that's more professional or romantic. That's that's kind of beside the point. But I don't really understand why people feel the need to mm. prescribe it to other people. Like it's yeah. okay for us to interpret the story differently. Yeah, and I think it's kind of funny. Um, you didn't include this part in the story here, but at the beginning oh, okay. of this article, the yes. um, the writer talks about Stormpilot. Mm-hmm. So they talk about the budding or potential romance between Finn and Poe in The Force Awakens. Yes. I know that that's a ship that came out of that story, but that's not something that I personally read in it. Mm. But it's okay because does it ultimately matter if someone else took something different away from it than I did? Yeah. You know, so they were like, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but the writer was like, oh, well, I guess we'll see what happens with that in episode eight, whether anything comes of it or not. Yeah. Um, Based on spoilers, I don't think there's anything coming from that. But I'm not (laughs) about to, you know... Rain, rain on, on this person yeah exactly because <laughs> yeah. who cares like you know people take away different things from these stories and i think it's it's just interesting to me because it's so different from my interpretation um uh, the stuff with storm pilot is that obviously they had these great interactions with each other they very quickly bonded and i know that, that there are things like the lip bite and him you know <laughs> saying yeah. keep the jacket and everything so that's yeah. that's great that people kind of read something into that um I personally didn't, but I get that there's stuff there that you can interpret that way. Mm. But what I will say is that there's stuff between Jin and Cassian that people can also interpret that way. Yeah. You know, there's these lingering glances when they're in the elevator and, <laughs> yeah. um, that, you know, they hold hands and they hug and you can say, yes, that's yeah. because of well, something terrible is about to happen to them, but it's still there. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah. 
no exactly i think that's just why like this article rubs me the wrong way you know it's like when it says things like it's important to recognize when those things simply aren't there that's like trying to imply there's an objectively true reading of rogue one and those characters relationship in particular and that it's wrong to not have that reading right like you say and it's just ridiculous because not everyone sees storm pilot that is not like seeds for a budding romance in everyone's perception i i i kind of think oscar was playing it that way because he pretty much said as much on the ellen show um but i don't think that means that's the direction they're going with in the story um yeah i mean i don't want to spend too much time in store pilot but um you know we we know from poe's development as a character that he was originally supposed to be played by someone quite a bit older than oscar yeah. And he was going to die very early on in the movie. They decided yeah. to keep him alive. And I think that's going to be um, quite handy for episode eight. But mm. um, yeah, I, I don't think he was ever supposed to be a truly sensual character. They've, yes. they've beefed it up in response to Oscar's great performance. But yeah. Yeah. He was always pretty much a plot device. Yeah. I don't I think, think people would yeah. have been shipping Stormpilot if he'd been the character had been cast as someone much older. <laughs> you know, John Hurd. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it probably so. would not be a thing. Um, yeah, is there anything else you'd like to say about Rogue One before we move on to questions? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure we're going to do character dissections in future episodes as well, where we focus on specific parts. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, I really like certain elements of it, and I'm not in love with other elements, and yeah, that's okay. I mean, but I think we have a question that refers to this a bit later, so that we could kind of focus on it a bit more there but yeah i i think one thing i'd like to say just to close off my thoughts about rogue ones i feel like i really want to say this is like and, and i feel bad because i feel like i'm being really negative here when i talk about rogue one um but at the same time i don't feel like i should feel bad so it is just my opinion and i do like it like i like the final act especially i think they build this amazing tension and drama there i love all the vader stuff so on and so forth that's all great but I think it just happens that when you're like a critical and analytical person, it tends to be more interesting to discuss the things that you felt could have been done differently or could have been improved. So right. Yeah, that's like the angle I'm coming at it from. And yeah. yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say like, the more I think about it, the more it bothers me how women generally are treated in Rogue One. So like I said, I really like Jin. I think she's a great female character and a great hero, but it is just so frustrating to me how the other female characters are treated and just the complete absence of other female characters for the most part. Because um, I, I think you brought it to my attention, Kirsty. There's some kind of treat um, tweet from like one Gar- of the Gary Witter. Yeah. Yeah. And basically it's something like about how, oh, look, all those wonderful English faces like in Rogue One. Don't, don't they look smashing in line up? I actually or, found that quite offensive. Yeah, exactly. And it's like yeah they're great representation of english white dudes Woo. yeah i really don't actually you know maybe it's just the case of people maybe not being from england or having visited it but i really don't like this idea of english being a synonym for white and male mm. As, you know yeah I, I don't have the exact tweet to hand but it was like what you said that it was like oh these english faces it's so 70s it's so like a new hope it's like that's a problem that's yeah. not actually something to be celebrated. Yeah. Um, and guess what? Not all English faces are white and male. Yeah. It's like there is nothing that had to stop them from having loads more female extras in those scenes. 
You know, there, there could have been lots of women running around just in the background, like there were in Force Awakens. And that would have just done much more to like enrich it and think, yeah, this is like a world where it's inhabited by men and women. Great. Awesome. It's fun to see that. And because, yeah, there's nothing in A New Hope that precludes that from being a thing. Obviously, you do not see many women in in like the background in A New Hope, but that's pretty much like symptomatic of like the nature of the film industry and the nature of sci-fi in particular in the 1970s. That is not something that you should be trying to replicate with slavish loyalty. It's like, oh, 70s was sexist in terms of the casting of extras to play pilots. Let's um, replicate that here. Woo! Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's like, I wish they wouldn't honour that. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't, I really don't want people to think that I'm come away from this that I'm like I don't like the film because yeah, I really do yeah. but I I'm also not going to uncritically love every aspect of it yeah um definitely. you know I liked it a lot and I've talked about what I liked I liked the new Rogue One rebel characters I liked their dynamics with each other even though I want more of them mm. I liked Krennic I loved Vader mm. um but there are issues with pacing and characterization and and this over-reliance on nostalgia that people can also apply to The Force Awakens. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think those things are worth mentioning. It doesn't make me a hater. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to have problems with the film. And I don't think having problems with the film somehow like invalidates you as a Star Wars fan or means you suddenly hate Star Wars. Because I know I really love Star Wars, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, I just happen to prefer Force Awakens and think it's a better film <laughs> and yeah like and like I say if people feel the other way and they prefer Rogue One that's great and awesome and I wouldn't want to take that away from anyone but obviously anyone listening to this this is our opinions and we're just going to be frank and honest about them yeah I hope people don't think that we're kind of trying to dictate what what they should feel yeah like we're no, just no. literally two friends talking about this movie and people can agree or disagree or whatever and please you know send us your thoughts if there's something else that you think we missed or you know yeah, you, no, you exactly. want to add so yeah no, so we really didn't get many questions about Rogue One to be honest so like if there's anything you want to get our thoughts on or you want to share your own thoughts on in terms of Rogue One please let us know we'd love to hear from you um and this is actually be a good point to segue into questions <laughs> um and yeah, if you have questions you'd like to send us, please send them to scavengershoard at gmail.com. Um, right, and um, we just have two questions this time because we need to be done soon. <laughs> um, right. And the first question is from an anonymous Tumblr user. And it goes, I don't understand how you and Kirsty can be kind of lukewarm towards Rogue One and think Saw Guerrera is weird. Every time I see Rogue One, he makes more sense. When you haven't shown any interest in the Clone Wars or Rebels stories. I'm a Raylo fan too, but there are so many great relationships, characters in the Star Wars universe. Um, so, yeah, Kirsty, I know you have some strong feelings on this. So, please, far away. Yeah, I... Okay. So, I, I don't know if it's just the, the way that this person's phrased it, and maybe it's not intentionally how they, you know, meant it for it to come across. But I, it always makes me feel like I need to defend my Star Wars fan credentials, <laughs> which feels ridiculous. But I do watch the Clone Wars and Rebels. Um, mm. I really like those TV shows, but Rachel doesn't. So yes. I'm not going to launch into a long monologue every week to t- <laughs> tell her what I loved about this week's Rebels episode, because I don't think she would find that too interesting. Yeah, no, um, exactly. sorry to cut in, but just to explain, like I don't watch those things. but And that's why we don't talk about them here. 
but because I don't watch them, that shouldn't mean that you can't think that Kirsty doesn't watch them. It's best not to assume these things. I yeah, think so that's the issue. I've kind of um, thrown in references to them here and there where you know I think it's appropriate. So we had that women in Star Wars um, discussion. I think it was in our second episode. Yes. Um, and I talked about how I think the TV shows do a better job generally with female characters, um, female villains, and particularly women of color. So I yeah. really value them for that. And um, so the Saw Guerrera thing, um, it's actually because I love Saw from the Clone Wars that I don't love Saw in the film. Yeah. Um, it's why I kind of have a problem with the way that they handled his death scene mm. um, because it doesn't fit with what I understand of his character. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that, you know, this might be a minority opinion because I haven't heard an awful lot of people in the fandom talking about this. So it might just be me being weird. Um, again, just my opinion. But it seemed in the film kind of this plot convenience way to tick off the death of the mentor and Ray <laughs> Jin's hero journey. Mm. Um, so it was, and I understand, you know, the other characters fit into her hero journey. So Saw is being used as a plot device in her journey, but it didn't quite fit with what I had previously understood of Saw. Yeah. Um, like, so, as someone who hasn't seen the Clone Wars, so didn't have prior familiarity with that character, that didn't make sense to me, either, especially on subsequent watches when I was really able to think about it. So I was like, this guy, he's clearly very, very devoted to the cause. He's never stopped fighting. He's like very like bitter and angry and he really, really wants to bring the Empire down. It's like, why at that particular moment would he just suddenly throw everything away and stand there dramatically and let himself die? Yeah, like, it that, makes I, me I wonder if they... That he wouldn't even try, you know? I wonder if they had other stuff that ended up being cut. Um, I'm just certain they did. It just doesn't quite flow together. Yeah. It seems it kind of feels a bit jarring. Um, and I don't. I'm not going to go into spoilers because it was just last night's episodes. But Saw was on um, the new episodes of Rebels last night, mm-hmm. and I was much happier with how he was depicted there. Yes. Um, so I would recommend, even if you don't watch Rebels, I would recommend just watching those two episodes if you're interested in the character, because yeah. that's obviously a kind of in between of the Clone Wars and Rogue One. Yeah. Um, of how you would understand Saw's life. Yeah. Um, so it kind of makes me a bit sad that the general audience will only see Saw at the end of his life. That mm. his, you know, you see his body and mind kind of twisted by the effects of war with nothing left to give. Yeah. Um, so I, I get that as a foil for the more optimistic characters, the younger ones who still feel like they have something to give. But uh, it just doesn't quite work for me. I get what they're trying to do. And I've, I spoke before in, in our Rogue One Reaction podcast about him being kind of a, a foil to Vader mm. in terms of needing um, the apparatus to breathe. And, yeah. you know, um, yeah. yeah. I, 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 sorry, please go on. Sorry. I just, um, I don't want people to think that because we focus on the sequel trilogy that I'm not a fan of other things in Star Wars because I am. We just yeah. don't talk about them all the time. Yeah, no, exactly. Um. To give my perspective here, like, first of all, I feel really bad for Kirsty because I hate that just because I don't watch these things, which basically means we can't talk about them because, as Kirsty touched upon, probably... bad. <laughs> yeah, you can't have like a monologue, like when it's two people, like, who are meant to be having a discussion, like, because obviously I wouldn't really be able to contribute in a meaningful way because I don't watch these shows. But at the same time, I find it really kind of insulting to suggest that my opinion about Rogue One is invalid because I haven't seen Clone Wars or Rebels. 
I think that's part of the problem with the film, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a big part of my problem with the film, that, yeah, I'm sure it does enrich it a lot more if you come to it from this background where you are, say, invested in Saw, and you know you're going to see more from these characters in the future in Rebels. I'm sure that does add a lot, but you should not depend on that in order to make Rogue One a good and fulfilling viewing experience. You know, because... I, to tell you the truth, I don't watch Rebels just because it doesn't interest me that much. And also, time is very precious, and there are other things I would rather watch. Um, generally, non-Star Wars things, because I have to keep some kind of diversity in terms of the content I view, otherwise I'd go mad. <laughs> um, and yeah, like, and I don't think that there's any shame in that. And that's like why I'd never like try to blag it or pretend that I have seen them when I haven't. I have the first two seasons of Clone Wars and I do fully intend to watch it. It's just busy life, no time. And even though I plan to watch it, I don't plan to watch it in order to make sense of things or in order to have this magical revelation about how everything will suddenly click into place for me because I don't think that should be how it works. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. That's pretty This, you know, the extra tie-in material, that's how I see it with the TV shows. Yeah. Um, it should be enjoyed on its own terms. It shouldn't be like homework that you assign yourself to better yeah. understand the films. Um, this is all entertainment. So if you don't think that something's going to interest you or you've watched a few episodes and decide it's not for you, mm. that's completely all right. It doesn't make you less of a fan. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. the same with the books. You know, I, I've read a lot of the new canon books. I think the only one I haven't read is Tarkin. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to say someone's less of a fan if they don't have time to read those or the inclination. Yeah, so. exactly. And it, and it's not, I know for a fact, it's not like you read all those books and you like, mindlessly adore all of them. You think some are better than others. You oh, definitely. And ones that aren't so great. <laughs> yeah, and, honestly, and there's, there's some of them I haven't ended up finishing because yeah. I decided that I needed to get to other things. Because like you, I have a limit on my free time and what I can do with it. And um, they, I had other books I needed to get to. I, yeah. like, I like reading a lot. So exactly. um, there were other things on my bookshelf that I wanted to get to instead. And maybe sometimes a book just isn't working for me. And maybe I'll come back to it later or maybe not. Yeah. So. No, exactly. Um, right. And then the final question is from Alyssa writing to us on email. And her question is, so my question is about Disney and their connection to the Star Wars franchise. I've noticed that Disney seems to have been building a little bit recently on the theme of overcoming of overcoming hate, which is, of course, an issue that's very relevant right now. There's been some playing with that black and white line of sides. Um, a big one is Zootopia with its pretty blatant messages about divisiveness over race and gender. And we've been seeing antagonistic characters like Maleficent, the overprotective parent in several several movies, Professor Callahan from Big Hero 6, Nick Wilde, Maui, even Elsa, being a lot more human and of grey morality than earlier Disney antagonists. I was wondering how you thought this might play into episodes 8 and 9 and toy with the expectations of people who think the movies will remain clearly split into light and dark. I also wondered if you thought about the progressing trend of enemies to friends, Zootopia, Moana, and then Enemies to Lovers, Beauty and the Beast, over the very recent movies, might be trying to warm people up gradually for a real romance. Kind of far-fetched, I know, but what do you think? Um, yeah, I thought it was a really, really strong and interesting question. What did you think of it, Kirsty? 
yeah I think it's definitely something that identifies um recent trends in entertainment and the Mm. kind of characters and relationships that people are interested in seeing yeah um and obviously Disney are going to be the people who are on top of that yeah you know they are the king (laughs) yeah Um, so with the Maleficent example I think I've heard that there's a new Cruella DeVille origin story coming out soon (laughs) yes which I find pretty funny actually so there's this real appetite for you know humanized villains with these backstories and um possible redemption arcs and things like that because the real world is crap um in lots of ways and we want to believe that people who do bad things are capable of change um and might eventually deserve forgiveness and even love Mm. um so yeah those the older versions of these traditional fairy tales um you know like the, the evil queen um in snow white and countless other examples of those more traditional fairy tales Mm. um they do kind of have this black and white but it's still supposed to be about the younger person overcoming their hate and prejudice in lots of ways yeah um and overpowering with compassion and love yeah like that's that's the way that heroes win yeah they don't win by slaying um their antagonists not all the time it's not that's not the way it always works yeah um no um I, I thought, like like you, I thought this email made really great points. Um, I, I don't think it's all part of some kind of like master plan in order to make people comfortable with Raylo, even when Raylo happens. No, it's um, just how it fits into that that yeah. trend. That's the way they're going with the story. It's like it it fits into that more grey um, idea of overcoming initial feelings of hate and prejudice and yeah. fear. Exactly. It's like part of the zeitgeist. I think, you know, that happens to be a theme that is particularly prevalent right now. And like you say, it's because it's a response to how crappy the real world is. And the fact that we have never needed love and tolerance and compassion more than we've needed those things right now. Because you it almost takes like saintly patience in order to hang on to them, <laughs> considering all the crap that's going on in the world. Um, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah I was just going to talk about the Moana example oh i haven't seen that film so yeah go for it oh yeah. i'll try to keep it in very general terms then oh it's okay i it's mean it's really I, good I, uh, I, I will watch it but yeah i'm not too worried about being spoiled yeah i'll still keep it in general terms but basically there's like a big big monster and you'd think it would have to be killed and defeated in some like traditional way with like an attack like a big battle um but in the end it's just one person showing understanding and compassion Mm-hmm. Like, and that's what defeats the big scary lava monster um, and that is so powerful and it's done in such like an epic and moving way that you completely buy it and it just works like on an emotional level if that makes sense Yeah. Um, like, and it's this whole idea where well that may not be realistic but it's like a sentiment it's a notion that we really need right now and it's really important actually yeah I, you know because it's natural for people to, and villains are always constructed um, as, like you say, kind of in, in the zeitgeist, the current moment. Um, so Vader was obviously very applicable to the 70s um, and Kylo Ren is a villain created for today. Yeah. Um, so because of that, he's the kind of a Rorschach test for people to throw whatever issues they have with modern men and um, particularly young men. Yeah. Um, so you get a lot of, oh, he's he would vote for Trump 
or he, he's an yeah. he's an MRA. He tries to mansplain to Ray and control her and everything. Yeah. Um, so and all these things, I, while I don't agree with all of them in terms of what that's necessarily what the writers were consciously going for, it kind of feeds into this idea of him being the shadow of today's society, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, he's Ray's shadow, but he's also ours. So that's yeah. why people hate him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you don't is the message going to be that you can never reach these young men who feel lost or are incredibly angry and violent? Is that really going to be the message? Yeah. Um, or is it going to be that you can open a dialogue with people and you yeah. can overcome with compassion? Because if if not, that's a really depressing idea that, yeah. you know, people who are across the aisle in political beliefs and completely different from you um, ideologically and Adam Driver's comments about both sides being convinced that they're right are applicable mm-hmm. here yeah how how do you bridge that gap mm. you know yeah so. no and it reminds me also of things that adam said about these films being socially responsible right like he said that several times across several different interviews and i don't think it's remotely socially responsible to give people the takeaway oh this person's a complete irredeemable monster with no good reasons for like going this way and turning evil and bad and he's going to be punished and suffer eternally because of all the bad things he did i don't think that's particularly socially responsible because it might not be realistic but it's much more important that these films are like ultimately about forging understanding between two parties who could not possibly conceive that they could understand each other like at an earlier stage you know like that has big ramifications for like people with different political beliefs different religious beliefs like different ideological beliefs like because at the core of it that's what you get in star wars it's these very diametrically opposed ideologically belief ideological beliefs about how things should be and those like get drilled down to the personal level and that's what sends people in conflict with each other and yeah, I think it should be about resolving those differences and finding ways to overcome them rather than just entrenching them and going, oh, he's evil. There's no hope. Like That's not a socially responsible message. Right. Um, I think Ryan Johnson was talking to someone on Twitter recently about the prequels and for all their faults, you know, people, you know, are entitled to say that they don't they don't like them very much or whatever. But he was saying that the prequels are a seven hour movie for children um, about how good people can become afraid and give in to things like fascism mm. and and hate and dictatorship. Yeah. So we've talked before about how Carlo might be a reverse of Anakin. So yeah, you, you can come back the other way. You know, it's not too late. There's mm. hope. That's yeah. that's something that Star Wars stands for. Mm. Um. So yeah, I think this was a really good question. Yeah, same. It was really good. Um, yeah, and I think on that note, that's a good place to end. So I think you need to run soon, don't you? I do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed podcasting again. Um, and I hope you enjoy listening. Um, if you have any questions for the podcast, please send them to scavengershoard at gmail.com. And if you find us on iTunes, please, please, please leave us a rating and a review because it really helps us get up there in the rankings and get more people listening. Um, Kirsty? Um, yeah, I've, I really enjoyed podcasting again, too. I really missed Yay. it. <laughs> um, people can find me um, at, on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Um, and I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr if people want to follow me there or send me messages. So, yeah. And you can find me on Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr or on Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. 
Um, and I think that's us done for tonight. So thank you very much for listening and be sure to tune in next time. Bye. Bye.